uh, let's join our hearts. Let's join our hearts in prayer today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you that all of your promises are yes. They are true. They are always fulfilled. And we have that confidence because of who we know you to be through your son, Jesus Christ, who was the fulfillment of all your promises, who fulfills all of the longings of our hearts, who points us to a better day to come. And so, God, we raise up our thank you. We raise up our hallelujah. We raise up the declaration that you are faithful even when we are not, especially we see when we are not. God, you are. So, Father, would you have your way in these moments as we turn our eyes and our hearts to your word, to hear your voice today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go ahead and turn in your copy of God's life-giving word to the book of Esther. We'll be in chapter 7 today. And as you turn there, let me make a couple of notes for you. Number one, it seems that the high school did some work on their network over the weekend, and we just found out about it before the service, which means we have uh, more dim lighting because that's on the network, as well as our online worshipers are going to need to catch a delayed worship today. So online worshipers, we are sorry for the delay, but thank you for bearing with us, and we'll work to get these kinks ironed, kinks ironed out in the future. Uh, but then also you need to know that uh, next Sunday night we have our next members meeting as a church family. And so if you're a member of Redemption Hill, please make plans to attend next Sunday night over Zoom. And then also, as we shared last week, a save the date on, on uh, Sunday, December 20th, we have our Christmas celebration. We're not going to be worshiping in the morning on the 20th. We're going to be worshiping at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m., the 4 p.m. celebration will be uh, an enhanced kids experience. Everyone's welcome to attend any, either service, but the 4 p.m. will be a little bit more geared toward younger kids, and then uh, the 6 p.m. will be more of what we're used to in terms of Sunday morning or our uh, Christmas celebration. So uh, please, not only plan to be here, invite a friend. It's going to be a super safe environment. That's why we're uh, part of the reason why we're hosting two services to make sure we can spread out and socially distance just as we are uh, every Sunday morning here. Well, uh, as we turn our attention to the book of Esther, I want to jump right into the story today. I mean, how many of you, when maybe you're listening to uh, music on uh, Spotify or YouTube, uh, you just are like, please don't play an ad right now. I really want to hear the next song. And you know, like the, the 10 or 15 second variety is one thing, but now they're rolling like three minute ads. So, you know, if you're not paying attention, all of a sudden you're like, where did my music go? Okay. And so uh, rather than kind of, you know, pausing uh, for uh, a, a, an additional, you know, uh, thought of getting into the book of Esther today. We're just going to skip the ad. We're going to go right into the story so that we can understand what is happening here in the book, okay? So uh, Esther chapter 7 is preceded by Esther courageously going before the king at the risk of her own life to request that her people are delivered 
from the wicked plans of Haman who had planned a genocide of the Jewish people throughout the Persian kingdom. And in the moment where Esther has both King Ahasuerus and Haman there at the feast, we would expect her to present her request. And yet, surprisingly, she says, hey, come back to another feast tomorrow and I will make my request known. And so the anticipation is building and we think that the moment is going to finally come where the Jews will be delivered. And as Haman is exiting the palace, he sees his enemy Mordecai who once again does not bow down and honor him, but he stands his ground. And Haman is so incensed that he plans Mordecai's death the next morning. But as we saw in chapter six, we hit the turning point of the book where the king can't sleep at night. Does that ever happen to you? And the king can't sleep. And so he, he asked for a book of memorable deeds to be read to him where he discovers that Mordecai saved his life five years ago and nothing had been done to honor him. And so in this amazing reversal, the king plans to honor Mordecai as Haman is simultaneously planning Mordecai's death. And as we saw, the king orders that Haman lead Mordecai through the city with Mordecai wearing the royal robes and on the royal horse with Haman shouting, the man whom the king delights to honor. What an amazing reversal of fortunes as we considered the God of reversal last week. And so now we come to chapter seven. Haman is just rushed home and he's sharing about his horrible day and how he was shamed in the presence of his enemy. And and no sooner is he telling the story to his wife and his friends do the king's eunuchs come into his house to whisk him away to the second feast that Esther has prepared. And that's where we pick up in chapter seven of the book of Esther. So read with me as I read these words for us says this, so the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. The queen answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? And who dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath, 
from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. We see two major movements in the story of chapter seven. We come to the moment where Esther is able to finally present her request to save the Jews. And the chapter begins with almost a replay of what we saw in chapter six, where the king and Haman are feasting at the amazing preparations made by Queen Esther and her staff. I mean, this would have been a feast that would have made any feast that we enjoyed on Thursday pale in comparison. I mean, how many of you were were enjoying food to the degree that you were texting your friends the amazing dishes that you were enjoying? Anyone doing that? Besides my community group, I mean, there were like 25 pictures coming in, photo after photo, people not really bragging, you know what I'm saying, but just kind of proud of their work and, and just, I mean, the amazing feast, but, but this feast would have made any a feast that we enjoy pale in comparison. And it says once again that King Ahasuerus and Haman, they were drinking wine, and, and after that, King Ahasuerus again asked Esther, what is your request and what is your wish? Which brings us to the climactic moment of the book. Notice how carefully Esther makes her request with her hands sweaty and her heart pounding. She says, if I have found favor in your sight, O king. And if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. Now we have to consider just how delicate this moment is for Queen Esther. She is literally risking her life as she puts this request before the king. As commentator Karen Jobes points out in her excellent commentary, Esther begins the delicate and dangerous task of accusing Haman without incriminating the king, who had, after all, sealed Haman's decree of death with his full knowledge and approval. She has to incite the king against his friend and closest advisor without bringing the king's wrath down upon herself. 
In other words, Esther has to point out the king's wrongdoing without saying that he is wrong. Have you ever been there, tried to do that? It's not very easy. And oh, by the way, at the same time, she has to incite his anger against his closest friend and advisor, Haman. And so she begins by mimicking, echoing the king's words. What is your wish and what is your request? Up to half my kingdom. And Esther begins by saying, my wish is that my life be granted to me. And immediately the king must have wondered, who is threatening the life of my queen? Who would bring such an affront to me and my kingdom? And now that Esther has the king's full attention, she goes on and she says, and would you grant the life of my people? Remember, at this point, the king does not even know that Esther belongs to the Jewish people. And so she goes on and she says this, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Esther quotes the very words of Haman in his edict in chapter 3, verse 13 where Haman says the Jewish people are to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And yet she uses these words, veiling the author who is Haman and veiling the fact that the king was the approver of such an atrocity. What we have going on here in Esther's wisdom, her very uh, just incredible political maneuvers in the king's palace is an echo of what we find in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where Nathan the prophet goes before King David to expose his wrongdoing in not only committing adultery with Bathsheba, but then also seeing to it that Bathsheba's husband Uriah was murdered. And so Nathan very carefully tells a story of a poor man who had a precious one and only lamb who was stolen by a rich man. I mean, anyone would see the injustice. Anyone would see the exploitation. Anyone would be angered. And that's what's happening as Nathan pulls David into the story emotionally and he gets his anger up and he says, there must be justice done. And then Nathan looks to David and he says, you are the man. You are the one who has done this. And this is exactly what Esther is doing here. She's using an oblique tactic to pull the king into the story, to, to get him angry, and he doesn't even know who he's angry with. And so, in a very impassioned series of questions, he says, who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther then drops a bomb like few had ever been dropped in the palace. 
she screams out a foe, an enemy, probably pointing to him at this point, this wicked Haman. And the king is confounded and filled with fury. Haman is panic-stricken and desperate for his life, while Esther must be feeling a significant source of relief and filled with hope, which then we see immediately what happens next. Verse seven tells us that the king bursts out of the banquet hall into the garden where he's probably calculating, hey, what is my next move? After all, not only do I want to take Haman out, but he's my closest advisor. And if I go public with what has transpired, not only is that going to make him look bad, that's going to make me look bad. And I'm not about that. But as the king is in the garden of the palace, Haman is asking himself, what should I do? Haman's caught in another dilemma. If he follows the king into the garden, that's not probably going to end well for him. But if he leaves the palace, he's basically saying, hey, I'm guilty. And so the only thing he knows to do is to approach Esther and to beg of his life. And as he does so, not only is he breaking royal protocol by being alone in the presence of the queen, but now he approaches Esther, which the, the royal protocol said that no one should come within seven steps of the queen. And, and as the story unfolds, we can almost visualize this. If this were a, a, a movie, the, the, the camera zooms in on King Ahasuerus coming down the hall. And then it scans to to Haman as he approaches Queen Esther. We see Esther probably terrified, wondering what Haman might do to her. And then as the king rounds the corner, Haman in that moment is falling on the couch to beg for his life. And yet it looks like that he might be trying to assault the queen. And so the king erupts and he says, would he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? To which the eunuchs then rush to covered Haman's head to take him into immediate custody. In verses 9 and 10, wrap up this segment of the story by saying this. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs in attendance on the king, said... Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So the king hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. As we look at this story, we should ask at least two questions, two questions that are great to ask of any section of the Bible that you are reading anytime. What does this section tell us about God? And what does this section tell us about 
us? I want to take those questions in reverse order. First, what do we learn about fallen, frail, imperfect people? Because that's the only kind of person we would ever read about in the Bible, by the way, are fallen, frail, and imperfect people. And I want to zoom in on the heroine of the book, Queen Esther. We know throughout the story that while Esther was elevated to the position of queen in the Persian Empire, she was still an ordinary human being like us. We saw particularly in chapter 4 how Esther was filled with fear at the prospect of going before the king. And her first inclination was not how she could be the hero of her people, but how she would probably die in the presence of the king. And yet, in that same chapter, we see her great compassion to Mordecai, her cousin, as well as her courageous character and leadership as she resolves to go before the king saying, if I perish, I perish. One of the reasons I love the book of Esther, perhaps this will resonate with you as well, is that it shows us how God loves to use unlikely people to accomplish his great purposes. God, listen, God loves to use unlikely, ordinary people to accomplish his great purposes. Think about it. Number one, Esther is a foreigner in the city of Susa. She would if her identity would have been exposed, she would have been looked upon as inferior, less than a second-class citizen. I mean, Esther was not an immigrant to the Persian Empire. She was a captive as the people of Israel had been captured out of their homeland and taken into enemy territory. But not only was she a foreigner, Queen Esther was also clearly a woman. In this culture, this culture treated women as inferior. We saw this in chapter one. And yet Esther leverages her position as queen with dignity and grace. She reveals how strong she is in the presence of King Ahasuerus and Haman. And she proves that she is actually the most influential person in the room, not by her position of authority, but by the force of her character and her wisdom. And we should pause for just a moment and recognize that in our own nation right now, we have reason to celebrate, regardless of your political views and the details of, of, of how you think about uh, politics, we should celebrate that America just elected our first female vice president, who also happens to be the first black person to this elected office and the first 
Asian American to hold the vice presidency. That's amazing to consider and celebrate as we look at Kamala Harris being elected as the vice president to President Joe Biden. But not only is Esther a foreigner and a woman, don't forget Esther is also an orphan. She would not have been chosen in her childhood to be the most likely to succeed of all her peers. And yet, God, remember, God loves, God loves to use unlikely, ordinary people to accomplish his greatest purposes. This is what the Bible shows us again and again and again. I hope you know 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, that says this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. You're saying, Pastor Tanner, what, what are you talking about a jar of clay? A jar of clay was a common, ordinary vessel in the first century. It would be much like a cardboard box today, just an ordinary a vessel to hold ordinary things. And yet, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, but God... But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I don't know where you are in your life today. And I don't know where you are in your journey, but something tells me that at times you feel very ordinary and quite insignificant. And you doubt whether or not God Almighty could use you to accomplish great things in your life. But the Bible again and again and again shows us how God uses people like you and I to do amazing things. We should never label limited what God labels limitless. And I mean that. It's not like, that's not like hyperbolic preacher talk, right? That's like God has given every human being unlimited potential. Why? Because we belong to him. Our lives belong to him. As we submit our lives to God, as Esther does throughout this book, we have unlimited potential to accomplish extraordinary Things. But as inspiring as the story of Esther is, there is a greater hero in this book, which is God himself. Which leads us to the second question. Not only what does this passage teach us about fallen human beings, but more importantly, what does this passage teach us about God? We see in chapter seven, as we saw in chapter six, as we're going to see as we move throughout the rest of this book, that God continues to work in ways that we cannot see. God brings amazing reversals when we would least expect it. Just think about the book's primary conflict between Haman and Mordecai they experience this amazing reversal in dramatic fashion where 
the gallows, which, which refers to in, in the Persian empire, the preferred method of death for not a gallows for someone to be hung on, but it was a stake by which someone would be impaled upon. The, 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 the gallows, this stake that Haman had prepared for Mordecai's death becomes the instrument by which he dies that very same day. And so throughout this story, we see how the book of Esther is a literary masterpiece because God is a masterful author. Look at this picture from the Bible Project that, uh, by the way, they put out some great free resources online. You can check out their videos on different books of the Bible and different uh, key words and themes and uh, throughout uh, the Bible on their, their free resources but this, this picture of the story of the book of Esther shows us the literary structure of the book. And what you see here is that the first five chapters are mirrored by the last five chapters with the first part of chapter six serving as the hinge point or the turning point for the book where the king can't sleep and he honors Mordecai instead of honoring Haman. And so uh, he, the, 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 the term, the technical term for this in, in Hebrew is, is this is called a chiasm where uh, the first part and the last part mirror each other and the second part and the next to last part mirror each other. Uh, a chiasm is, is uh, like saying eat to live, don't live to eat. Got it? I almost messed that up, right? Live to eat, don't eat eat to live. There we go. See, see, the, see the structure, how it mirrors one another? That's what's happening in the book of Esther. We, we see this explicitly in this moment of Haman being impaled on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, as you can see there in the corners of that image. And so here we have what we could safely call one of the greatest moments of poetic justice in the Bible, where the stake prepared for Mordecai's death becomes the stake by which Haman dies. And yet this only pales in comparison to the greatest moment of poetic justice in the Bible, where we see Jesus on the cross, winning the victory over his greatest enemy, Satan himself. That's what I want us to see this morning as we move through chapter seven. The, the, that's what we're calling this sermon, Visions of the Cross. The, the main point of the message today is that the cross of Christ delivered the greatest poetic justice in the triumph of good over evil. Jesus Christ, when it had appeared that his life would end and that Satan would have the victory through the prepared instrument of the cross, is actually the moment where Jesus achieves his greatest victory over Satan, sin, and death. And so just consider these scriptures that tell the story from the New Testament. 
Jesus says in John chapter 12, verses 31 through 33, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, referring to Satan. But then he explains how he would do it. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Do you see how this moment of Jesus' apparent defeat is the moment where he simultaneously defeats Satan and also accomplishes our opportunity to be reconciled to God, to be drawn near to God. We see the cross of Christ through this story in the book of Esther. We hear the same thing in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, speaking to Christians, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, referring to the demonic forces that opposed him, and put them, listen, to open shame. We can see Haman in his shameful death by triumphing over them in him. Jesus won the victory, and Jesus won our victory. And how about a verse that says the same thing, but it's so appropriate for the Christmas season? Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus appear? 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared, why did Jesus come? Was to destroy the works of the devil. I mean, I think I said this last year, but I just love this imagery. You know, uh, we love the nativity scenes, right? We, we love the ornaments of the nativity scenes, but I'm waiting for the, for the moment where someone releases a Christmas ornament that has a serpent with a heel crushing its head. Can I get an amen today? I mean, because that's what Genesis 3 tells us, that the serpent, Satan, will eventually have his head crushed by Jesus Christ, who has his heel struck on the cross of Calvary. In this story of Haman and Mordecai, as well as fast-forwarding to the cross where Jesus wins the victory over Satan. They both remind us of the words of Joseph in Genesis 50, verse 20, where he speaks to his brothers who had sold him into slavery, and he says this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I mean, I wish I had time to unpack all of Joseph's story and how we see the deliverance of the people of Jewish descent in the story of Haman and Mordecai, but how much more do we, through the death of Christ, experience life and salvation through his death. How much more is it that many people should live when they should really face death? 
This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This should stir our souls this morning and cause us to lean forward in our seat a little bit that our God is so good that he can take the worst evil and injustice and turn it into the greatest good. And so I want to ask you today, have you believed on Jesus Christ? Have you said yes to the salvation that he offers through his death and resurrection on your behalf, by which he died for your sins that you might be forgiven and brought back into a relationship with God and by which he defeated the powers of darkness through his life and light. If you've never said yes to Jesus, whether you are worshiping in the room or worshiping online, I want to encourage you today to say, Jesus, I'm all in. I want to follow you with my life. Would you forgive me of my sin that I might experience the life that you brought to me through your death? And if you have received Christ, I want to encourage you to be amazed by the story once again. The the encouragement that, that we can take as we move throughout today and tomorrow is to look to the cross and to look through the cross. Not only looking to the cross and remembering the victory of Christ and how our sins are forgiven and how he has brought us life through his death, which provides a thousand and one reasons to rejoice and celebrate and have hope, but also to not just look to, but to look through. You say, well, Pastor Tanner, what what do you mean by that? When we look through the cross, we look through our current circumstances, through the cross. Oh, I'm getting chills just talking about it right now. When we live a cross-centered life, when, when Jesus is first, we remember his life, we remember his death, we remember his glorious resurrection, and we look through him, we look through the cross at whatever we're facing in life today. I know it may be a difficult time. I know things aren't what we would hope them to be in 2020. I know that there are people who are sick and hurting. There are disappointments. There are expectations that we had, whether we're 39 or 49 or 29 or 59. And God is saying, look through the cross. What the enemy may mean for evil in your life, even the brokenness that you experience by your own shortcomings, listen, I can take them and I can work them for good. This is how good our God is. This is how magnificent his love is. This is how powerful he is to take any situation, to take any circumstance and to bring us the victory through apparent defeat. And so would you look to the cross today? And would you look through the cross today and tomorrow and the next and the next and the next? Because our God 
is bringing victories. And the ultimate victory is ours through Jesus Christ. So that's why Pedro and the team are going to lead us in a song that we've never sang on a Sunday here before, but it's called See a Victory. And we're going to sing this song by faith. Listen, I know that there are some people in the room online that your life is going pretty well. Like this is a victory season for you. And so it's going to be easy for you to sing this song super loud because your faith is very high because maybe your life is very good. But there are others that are saying, you know what, man, my life isn't that great, but my faith is pretty great. And so I can still sing it with passion and volume because I'm going to see a victory. My God is taking circumstances and he's turning them for his purposes. But then I also want to speak to those of you that, that may be really going through it. You, you may not have a lot of hope in this season. In fact, things may be so difficult that you are just entering into this place today broken and you don't even have the strength to sing the words of this song. And listen, that's okay. But if you would, just allow the, the words of the song. You might even just need to sit and pray as others stand and sing. But let these words fall on your ears and your heart today. The weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper. When the darkness falls, it won't prevail. Because the God I serve knows only how to triumph. My God will never fail. I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory. Why? For the battle belongs to the Lord God Almighty. Those last three, that title isn't in the song, but you can sing it if you want to, to the Lord. I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory for the battle. There's power in the mighty name of Jesus. Every war he wages, he will win. Jesus, yes, is undefeated. Thank you very much. Add some new lyrics to the song. And so that's why we can say I'm not backing down from any giant because I know how the story ends. And then we sing Genesis 50, verse 20. We just read it. We sing it. I don't know if it's the bridge or the tag or the third verse. It doesn't matter what the enemy meant for evil. You're turning it for good. Oh God, may the words of this song, but more importantly, the words of your scriptures penetrate our hearts today to meet us where we are. That we would have visions of the cross no matter where we are in your word, no matter what we're going through in our lives, that we would look through to see you at work bringing the victory. God, we thank you. Help us sing. Help us to receive it by faith today. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen and amen. You can be seated for just a quick moment and and I get the wonderful privilege this morning of doing one of my favorite things, and that is presenting to you uh, three of our newest covenanted members here at Redemption Hill Church. At sometime in the past, they raised their hand, they demonstrated interest, they went to a covenant class, they met with an elder, they shared their stories, they were affirmed at a members' meeting, 
And this morning, they have an opportunity to affirm their commitment to what we like to call the Member's Covenant. And um, joining Redemption Hill Church as part of an all-in member means that we have the opportunity, uh, no matter the day of the week or the finances that God has shared with us or the personalities and the experiences that he's given us, to bring those all in alignment together so that we can actually move and see the victories that we heard about this morning accomplished together as a member of the same local church. And so I'm going to give um, these individuals an opportunity to just introduce themselves to you briefly, and then I'll just walk us through a covenant experience. Hi. Oh, it works. <laughs> Hi, my name is Faith White. Um, I'm a senior at Tufts, and I serve on the college ministry team and with Redemption Kids. Hi, my name is Pedro. I serve with the music team. <laughs> there you go. For those who didn't know. And me and Bianca, we recently married about six months now. They still have that glow. <laughs> Hi guys, I'm Bianca and I also serve um, with the worship team and we serve um, community groups group on Wednesdays with Mateus. Well, one of, the, uh, one of the expectations or one of the commitments that we make to each other as members is that we're going to steward our time, our talents, our finances, our spiritual gifts together as the body of Christ. And that's just one example of many commitments that we make to each other, promises that we're going to encourage each other towards. And so I ask these three uh, new members, do you pledge to fulfill these commitments and the other ones that are stated in our covenant to each other and to us as the body of Christ as the Spirit gives you strength? And if so, would you boldly and clearly affirm by saying, we do? We, we do. do. Uh, we practice that. Good job. So because uh, we view membership here at Redemption Hill Church as synonymous as being full-time missionaries to greater Boston in the way that we uh, handle our resources, in the way that we spend our time, in the way that we organize everything that God has providentially provided to us, we commission you as full-time missionaries and send you out to wherever God has placed you. Even in COVID, he has given you unique places that only you can reach. And so to that end, would you just join me as I pray for these three new members? Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, each of these individuals have decided to join the great mission that you're accomplishing through us, Redemption Hill Church. Father, may they calibrate their time wisely. May they celebrate with gratitude the great deposit of talent that you've placed into them. May they release with just greater maturity the resources that you've provided to them. May they understand and develop their unique spiritual gifts. We pray, Father, for the filling of your spirit, that it would be in abundance, that they also might overflow into those that are around them. Father, for those of us that are gathered here or are viewing online, we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray, amen and amen. I'm going to ask them to take out their member covenants, which they have, and just as a sign, a symbol to sign them uh, in front of you, and as they do that, I'm just inviting you. Send them a word of encouragement. Members, if you're here, give them a text and, and tell them about your experience. If you're curious about 
membership at Redemption Hill Church. You can look to the app. There is two covenant classes coming up soon that you can participate and learn a little bit more of that. And if worse comes to worse, just give me a ring, and I'd be glad to tell you about the next step in the process.